This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. The reality is that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of mortality in women, and there are roughly 300,000 deaths from cardiovascular disease in women every year. It's easy to miss cardiovascular disease as also a very important health topic for women in this demographic. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host for today's episode, Jamie Zage. For today's episode, I have invited my guests, Ray Gamber and Dr. Jeremy Miller, to discuss an important topic in today's women's health, cardiovascular disease, and the increasing interest in women's heart health programs. As a start to open us out here today, Jeremy and Ray, we've known about the differences in men and women in cardiovascular disease for some time. Why is this so important today? What's been happening that brings this back up to be a topic that our clients need to hear about? Thank you, Jamie. It's obviously so important and thanks for having us. This topic is extremely important today for a number of reasons. As you mentioned, the knowledge base that there are differences in men and women in cardiovascular disease is certainly a concept that we are all familiar with. The evidence continues to build. And over the last two or so years, there have really been a series of calls to action. The American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology have been focused on developing comprehensive resources on this topic and the AHA in particular issuing that presidential advisory call to action just last year where they really want to focus on things like epidemiology and prevention, awareness and access and delivery of equitable health care. But in the meantime, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists in 2019 released a practice bulletin citing cardiovascular disease as the leading cause of death in pregnant women and women in the postpartum period. This focus on maternal mortality is front and center, knowing reports that have come out showing that the United States has much higher rates of maternal mortality and our rate is growing while other nations are declining. And it's inherently tied to cardiovascular disease as it's the leading cause. So given the focus on health equity today, that's another reason why this issue really has prominence and why we felt we needed to focus on it in our recent FAQ publication. In that pub, we offered a framework. The framework really aims to help organizations think about the different patient populations that would benefit from women's heart health program. We think about women who have cardiac conditions prior to pregnancy, so think congenital anomalies. There's also a group of women who develop cardiac conditions during pregnancy, so think preeclampsia, for example. We also have to think about women who are more likely to develop cardiac conditions later in life because they had pregnancy-induced hypertension. And then that fourth category are those cardiac conditions where there are actually now gender-based guidelines or considerations. That's right, Ray. You can think about this to a certain extent as a timeline in a woman's life. When I think about cardiovascular disease in pregnancy, the first thing I think about is those pre-existing cardiovascular disease. It's not uncommon comorbidity in pregnancy. And here we're thinking about things like valvular disease, ischemic heart disease, congenital anomaly. The pediatric patients who have complex cardiac anomalies, they live long enough and they actually live into childbearing years, and that can also complicate their pregnancies. The last thing that I put on that list of pre-existing disease would be arrhythmia. And you can think of pregnancy as a nine-month-long cardiovascular stress test. So a patient who was well compensated when she's not pregnant can start having difficulties in the context of pregnancy. And that's where these cardio-obstetrics teams come into play. Patients who've got pre-existing conditions, helping those patients to navigate their health in the setting of pregnancy and getting somebody through that can be challenging. We also know that women who 
develop a chronic hypertension on that list, women who develop hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So whether that's chronic hypertension, those women are at an increased risk of developing preeclampsia. And then we also see the spectrum of disorders called gestational hypertension. So elevated blood pressure and some of those women will progress on to preeclampsia. That can be a challenge sometimes depending on the nature of the disease for the cardioobstetrics team. We know that women who develop preeclampsia are much more at risk for developing hypertension later on in life. Here I'm thinking about things like diabetes, being overweight. Those are also risk factors for heart disease. Even independent of that, women who develop gestational hypertension or preeclampsia are more at risk for adverse outcomes later on in life. What is that different type of heart health program that helps to use this framework to more effectively manage patients who have the pregnancy side or they don't? We offer two types of programs in the FAQ. The first being that more pregnancy-focused program, I'll call that cardioobstetrics. And then the other type of program that we reference is that midlife multidisciplinary program. And this is going to be programs that really focus on women who may have experienced pregnancy-induced hypertension in the past and women who have heart disease more in midlife and require that multidisciplinary approach. I'll start with cardioobstetrics. This is really all about organizations bringing in a cardioobstetrics provider, so enhancing their expertise in this area. And this is a relatively new or emerging subspecialty within cardiology. So it can often be part of a cardiology fellowship training, and it's focused on the prevention, detection, and management of pregnancy-related cardiovascular disease. These programs are all about that formalized partnership between OB and CB that focuses on patient care, education, and in many cases, research. This is certainly an area where there's a lot of research to be done. Cardioobstetrics programs, there's a spectrum of them. In their most basic form, it may be as simple as a cardiac consult service for your OB program. In a fully comprehensive program, you'll have full-blown integration from preconception to postpartum. It's also worth pointing out, Ray, that right involvement of cardiology with OB and with MFM, that's essential to this. Depending on the nature of the program, it is multidisciplinary. So eventually, you know, pregnant patients, they end up in the hospital to deliver. And depending on the level of complexity, involvement with anesthesia staff is important. Some of the other components that are important to bear in mind, diagnostic imaging for pregnant women is going to be different from diagnostic imaging in people who aren't pregnant. Just the physiologic changes of pregnancy are not necessarily intuitive let's say a patient has an echocardiogram, it's going to look different in a normal, if it's a pregnant person who doesn't have cardiovascular disease, it will look different as compared to a woman who is not pregnant. And then you throw a pathophysiology on top of that, it can be difficult to tease out exactly what it is that you're seeing. Understanding what the imaging is actually showing is really important here. That's an important piece, especially as we think about the cardioobstetrics program, is that measurement of outcomes and the longitudinal follow-up when women have these experiences in pregnancy, they by definition require that longitudinal care and into the midlife multidisciplinary programs. How we connect those dots, follow women uh, across the lifespan, that's challenging for any health system to do. And so that's certainly a focus of cardioobstetrics programs is thinking, how do we support this patient in the long term? The other thing that's interesting about that, Ray, is that the outcomes are not distributed evenly. And we know that the women who are more at risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes or for developing incipient cardiovascular disease are more likely to be underserved populations. They're more likely to be Black and Hispanic. And there is, to the extent that they're underserved, this 
potential for, yes, the patient is engaged with care and has access to care during her pregnancy and during the postpartum period. And then after that, there's just less access for those individuals and we lose the opportunity to intervene. That is the time that you want to take that patient who's got risk factors for cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, and manage those conditions so the patient is less likely to develop the adverse outcome in the back end. But that could be a challenge, right? Because the resources don't necessarily exist to support those patients. That brings an interesting part of this program development. How much of this is stratifying, segmenting the patient population based on their risk in terms of who you actually screen? Back when prenatal care was designed, this whole notion of, yes, we're going to take care of the patient before she actually delivers, it was designed to see if we could affect outcomes with regard to hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, prevention of preeclampsia. And we haven't really been able to prevent it, but at least we can be more sensitive to the detection of blood pressure changes and manage it appropriately. Yes, do we screen? And probably the most important thing that happens at a prenatal visit is checking the patient's blood pressure. That is, every single time a patient comes into the office, that you want to check the patient's blood pressure in a proper fashion. And in the event that you have an index of suspicion that there's actually something going on, equipping that patient with the capacity to to monitor her blood pressure in the home setting is important too. And that's where, whether it's just providing the patient with a cuff or actually providing her with a more comprehensive program, like an app-based approach to transmission of blood pressure information, all of those things are valuable. But we screen everybody, everybody's getting a blood pressure check. Clearly, there are some patients who I'm more worried about than others. Ray, you mentioned that there were actually two different kinds of programs, and we've talked about the obstetric one. Do we want to spend a little bit of time on the midlife? This is really thinking more about women who have passed towards the end of the reproductive age or have passed that time period. And this is really when all people begin to think about heart health. That's an important part of their overall general health care. So midlife multidisciplinary is really going to focus on heart health with integration into things like primary care within general CV care that women may seek without focusing on sex-based differences. And then of course, the integration in chronic care. So just thinking about the epidemiology of hypertension and diabetes, chronic care is so important to the general system of care today. When we talk about midlife programming for women, classically what we're thinking about is the management of menopausal symptomatology. We're thinking about pelvic floor disorders. We're thinking about our breast programs. Consider how many women get mammograms and how much organizational energy is devoted to screening for breast cancer. And we know that there are roughly 250,000 cases of breast cancer annually in this country. There are roughly 40,000 deaths from breast cancer in this country. And we think that breast cancer is a really big deal. So when we think about our women's health programming in the mid-lifetime, we're thinking about these things. Well, Okay, great. But the reality is that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of mortality in women, and there are roughly 300,000 deaths from cardiovascular disease in women every year, and breast cancer, and pelvic floor disorders, and this other stuff. I don't want to say it pales by comparison, but it's easy to go down the rabbit hole and think that those are the most important issues that midlife women are actually facing. And I don't want to say it's not true, but it's easy to miss cardiovascular disease as also a very important health topic for women in this demographic. The trick is trying to figure out how to bring cardiovascular disease and talk about it at the same time that you're talking about menopause and the same time you're talking about breast cancer and the same time you're talking about pelvic floor disorders and bringing those things under one roof. 
well said, what differentiates midlife multidisciplinary from cardioobstetrics? Cardioobstetrics might be a true program within your organization. The midlife multidisciplinary is really all about integrating this subspecialized view and these capabilities into things that women are accessing like primary care, access to cardiovascular specialties, and their chronic care management. So on this side of the paradigm, this is really more about integration and care coordination rather than a put a circle around a program and it's a little less defined on its own. If I had to choose two words here, I think awareness would be the first one, that awareness meaning that making women aware that cardiovascular disease is important, even for midlife women, making providers aware that this is the case, making the providers in the organization aware that we have resources that are dedicated to framing heart disease in terms of its gender basis. Awareness is clearly important. And the other thing that I think about is channels. You also have to make it easy for providers to refer patients and for patients to navigate that referral relatively seamlessly. Actually executing on that is complicated. You've got to get buy-in from the patients and primary care physicians and OBGYNs and the individuals where the referrals are going. And you have to get organizational investment in order to make that happen. And that brings up an, another interesting question. And it seems like there's a lot of potential for downstream revenue generating activity here, but is that alone enough of a business case? So when you talk about getting everybody bought into this and you think about senior leadership at a health system and are they going to invest in the IT infrastructure that you need to support the connectivity, the access clinics, those types of things, is that a no-brainer or is it something where you've really got to show the value with these types of programs? What's the business case? Jamie, the obstetrics piece is always a challenge, but growing obstetrics is extremely important today. Being able to capture that growth that is in the market is going to be important from the cardioobstetrics program. But again, that just increases your cost. These are not what we typically think of as strong revenue drivers. And so certainly acknowledge that the cardioobstetrics piece from a revenue standpoint, if we're just calling it OB, is challenging. There's multiple downstream views at this. If we think about NICU, of course, bringing in cardioobstetrics would give you a higher risk patient population, which are more likely to leverage the neonatal intensive care unit. Women who require a cardio-OB program are at elevated risk for CV disease later in life. So if you even think about maintaining that woman for her entire lifespan, you're growing your CV program, which I am told by experts here at SG2 that those are at least particularly revenue generating. In general, for the midlife multidisciplinary, as you mentioned, it would be not just an investment in the technology that enables you to do this type of coordination. It might be people, and it might be taking time to develop guidelines and collaboration across providers. If we're thinking about the financials and downstream revenue, on the face of it, if I have to make a financial bet, I'm probably making that financial bet on midlife programming rather than cardioobstetrics. The exception being, to raise point, that NICU volumes are important. And if you have a particularly strong cardioobstetrics program, that might help to drive NICU volumes. And that's really the place that you're going to make a play in terms of downstream revenue in the OB population. What would you, Ray, have our listeners consider or think about? What are sort of those key points in thinking about or building a women's heart health program? 
First and foremost, we've got to segment our patient populations into the cohorts that we offer in the FAQ or however your organization tends to think about it. But we've got to really stratify and risk profile our patients because even if we bring on these capabilities and these experts, the demand is strong for these services. So how do we identify who gets them? And there that segmentation and risk profiling will be important. Secondly, collaboration. This is all about bringing in multiple providers who all have their own ways of doing things, who all treat their patients their way. And especially as we think about the different service lines that come together here, the different subspecialties that come together here, it's a feat. We need that collaborative spirit to make these programs successful. Thinking about the channels, how do we partner with primary care? And then lastly, like any program, measurement. How are we measuring, improving our success? Maybe revenue is not the measurement, but quality outcomes, having an impact on those maternal mortality and morbidity rates is really important across the board to organizations today. And same with the midlife multidisciplinary programming, our our CV outcomes are essential to successful programs. That's right, Ray. I might even go higher level that we're talking about CV and we're talking about obstetrics and we're talking about midlife. When organizations are trying to define or trying to build programs, they should be deliberate about what exactly it is that they're trying to accomplish. Being very concrete, you don't have to do everything. You should try to figure out exactly what your program is trying to do, and then have some concrete and measurable outcomes that you're looking to obtain. The final point that I have is that successful programs demand investment. They demand investment of money. And more importantly, they demand investment of individual and organizational energy. And the idea that you can just cobble something together and it's actually going to change the experience of our patients, it doesn't really work that way. This is complicated. Thank you so much for your time today. Dr. Miller, Ray, we appreciate your insights and sharing this really important topic with our listeners. We'll see you the next time. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.